Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Kellen and I just spent a solid five minutes coming up with various ways that we could introduce the fact that this is our 100th episode of the podcast. And instead of using any of those incredibly stupid ways, I'm just going to say, this is the 100th episode of our podcast. How does it feel? It feels amazing. Does it actually feel any different? <laughs> <laughs> no. It is pretty cool, though, because back when we started, I do remember talking to you about and we were like one or two episodes in, you were still so new to all of it, trying to take it all in. And I had all these ideas. I was like, yeah, maybe in like a couple of years, once we've got, you know, dozens of episodes under our belt, we can start doing this or that. And I remember you kind of being like, whoa, whoa, like, I can't really commit to that. I don't really know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if we're going to be around that long. And I agreed. Who knows if this thing is not successful, if we don't have people listening, then we very well may not. But it's pretty cool to be here a hundred episodes later and still feel like we're just gaining momentum, but it's fun to watch the podcast have more and more success and be able to watch it touch more and more people. Yeah, it does feel like a significant milestone. Like really doesn't matter, right? But it represents a lot of things that I've learned. And I'm just amazed that there is still so much to talk about. Frankly, I don't know if we've prioritize things the right way. Like I, w I wouldn't say necessarily that we've been covering things by order of importance because we get reached out to through email or Patreon or on Twitter, or wherever, and people are requesting that we cover certain topics that we haven't even dived into yet. Yeah. So that's our way of saying a hundred episodes gone. Maybe there'll be a hundred episodes more. Who knows? 
And as much as we enjoy doing the research, having these conversations, learning from each other, we wouldn't be dedicating the time to it without all of you that are listening. And so we really appreciate, I mean, this isn't like some big celebration. We are excited to reach a hundred episodes, but more, it's just, we're grateful that we've had the support from people that are learning with us as we go about these really important topics. Speaking of celebration though, what should we do to celebrate? Cause I was thinking maybe just make this a shorter episode and go to bed a little earlier tonight <laughs> instead of being, being out here recording till one in the morning. That sounds good to me. Perfect. Let's hop on it. You know, really, I can think of no better way to celebrate 100 episodes than to talk about air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness, air conditioning is something that I was surprised to realize how much of an impact is already having and is going to have on how collapse plays out. It's something that so many people take for granted. It's enriched our lives in so many ways. It's added so much comfort to so many people, but... In reality, there are so many aspects to it that I think are really important to look at, both from a sort of an environmental perspective, but also from the perspective of learning how to be able to be okay living without it. When we talk about technologies, you know, there are some technologies that help us fight against aspects of collapse. For example, carbon capture, like we're trying to actually combat a certain issue. Or almost reverse an issue. Yeah. There are other technologies that are just us trying to kind of mitigate it. Like a Band-Aid? Yeah. I I kind of think of like electric vehicles, for example, are a better alternative than gas vehicles in, in most ways when it comes to the impact they're having on the environment. But it's still progressing like climate change. So it's like carbon capture would almost be reversing something, whereas electric vehicles is like slowing it down. Yeah. But then there's this other category of technology that's like, you could put it under either coping or or just trying to adapt to collapse and all the aspects of collapse. And so I think about all these episodes we've done on can technology save us? And usually we're focused on those things that are either trying to mitigate or reverse something like climate change. But with air conditioning, it just feels really interesting because nobody out there is going to claim like air conditioning is going to save us necessarily. And yet it it's to the point, especially with all the heat waves and the droughts and everything that we've been having that like populated parts of the planet are not habitable without it. And yet every time I'm using my air conditioning to keep myself cool and comfortable, that's using a lot of energy that's just contributing to the problem. So to me, it feels like this really fascinating paradox. And Corey, I'm interested to learn from you after all the research that you've done. Yeah, in a few minutes here, we'll dive into that paradox specifically. Before we do, I think it's good to just take a quick look sort of the background of air conditioning and and why we use it and where it came from. I'm not going to go into the history. I do think it has a pretty interesting history as far as where it started and how it became widely accepted and some of the changes that it actually arguably made to the world and some things that are very specific. But just as an overall kind of look at it, air conditioning was created and, and really started strictly from a place of comfort, right? It wasn't this big necessity. People were doing fine without it. We did fine without it for hundreds and thousands and even millions of years as a species. 
over time, and specifically around the post-war U.S. sort of economic boom, is when AC began to transition to more of an everyday household utility rather than a luxury. You know, it had started out in retail stores and in businesses and manufacturing, but soon it made its way into households. And this is kind of where capitalism stepped in a bit and builders sort of started to just include it in home builds. It was just sort of the expectation that if you're building a new home, you're going to do it with AC. And it pretty quickly became widely accepted. Um, Today, 87% of homes in the U.S. have an air conditioning unit. They're not all central air. So there's a difference between like a central air unit and a package unit is what it's called when it's all sort of in one. We can kind of talk about the differences there, but it's relatively the same idea. And another thought is that it's important to note that even though 87% of homes have air conditioning, AC is not just used for cooling people, but it's also used for storing and transporting food. It's used in production processes for medicine, lots of different uses and need for cooling things. And it's good to hear some clarity. I'll just say that air conditioning sounds like a really vague term, right? Like anytime you're altering the temperature of the air, you would think it would fall under that category. But in a spot that my wife and I previously lived, the way we kept our house cool was with a swamp cooler. And I don't think that's what you're talking about here. Am I right? So really it depends on what specific part of the conversation you're talking about. Some energy usage figures will include all cooling systems, so swamp coolers included. But when we're talking about things that are damaging to the environment through refrigerants, we're not talking about swamp coolers. And we'll dive a little bit into the differences between them here in just a minute. But I think for the most part, the energy usage figures are going to include swamp coolers. That being said, swamp coolers are much more energy efficient. They are not necessarily as effective, and so they're not used as often. They're just window units that don't cool an entire house through ductwork, right? Like a central air unit would. But yeah, it's good to make that distinction. So we'll touch back on that here in just a minute. So going back a little bit to the acceptance of AC and how it's grown over time, the U.S. really led the way. Other countries were not utilizing AC much. In other places in the world, they lived so long without it, and there were a lot of sort of architectural designs, building designs that were meant to help a building ventilate better, help it stay cooler. There was actually a lot of work that goes into building buildings that don't necessarily need AC. Slowly, though, over time, as architecture around the world has sort of become more Americanized and America's had more influence on the global community, AC has crept more into that global setting. There are tons of examples of American builders who contract to build large commercial buildings or apartment complexes in other countries, and they use the exact same designs as in the U.S. in those countries. And so it sort of started to push AC on the rest of the world. And I mean, air conditioning is one of those things that once you experience it and you use it, you never want to go back to not having it. And so inevitably over time, more and more people and more and more countries have just accepted that AC is a part of everyday life. It's become not just a luxury, but something that is sort of a a needed or a necessary utility. That being said, there are still tons of people in the world who do not have access to AC. 
for example, India, there's only 12% of Indians that have AC and that being, you know, some of the hottest parts of the world there. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, notes that for nearly 3 billion people living in the hottest part of the world, only 8% have AC units. And this kind of goes back to a little bit what we were talking about last week, how a lot of times the poorest nations or the most impoverished people are not only the ones who don't have access to technologies that would help them with climate change like AC, but they're also in the parts of the world that are the hottest. One interesting thing to note, this goes back to what I was saying about how interesting the history is. There's a book that came out in 2014 called How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World. And the author's name is Stephen Johnson, and he basically connected the dots between the spread of air conditioning and the election of Ronald Reagan, basically stating that AC units made the southwestern U.S. more hospitable, where it hadn't been in the past. And that growing population in that region specifically became an important base for him and his campaign. Meanwhile, I didn't write this part down, so I'm trying to remember it. Something about how one of the leaders of Singapore basically said that air conditioning is the reason that his country has been able to grow and thrive as it has. That without AC, Singapore would likely still be an underdeveloped country. And it's interesting as you touch on the history of it, and you mention it being kind of this luxury, and the fact that much of the population right along the equator where it does get hottest, doesn't have it. You're right. That absolutely highlights just how backwards, you know, opportunities are around the world to escape the impacts of climate change and collapse in general. As you're describing all this, I'm thinking about some of the things I've seen recently with all the heat waves and the fact that certain cities are trying to create like cooling centers that you know, the people in those cities that don't have a way to keep themselves cool, they need a place that they can travel to where they can get away from the heat. And so the fact that that's becoming part of our, our budget, part of our infrastructure, that cities are having to plan for that, highlights that it's just a growing need, right? Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the cooling centers. That's something we'll talk about a little bit later towards the end of the podcast, just around some of the ideas for how to actually solve some of the AC issues that we're going to face. Some of those solutions say like, frankly, we just need to accept the fact that for most of the time, most of the year, AC is not necessary and it's okay to be uncomfortable. There is no ideal temperature that we should all just be expected to sit at all day. We need to be okay with not being comfortable all the time and focus the AC usage on these cooling centers, make sure that everyone has access to them in emergency situations, and thereby being able to really decrease the amount of AC that we need. I think it's an interesting idea, but you know that same person also talks about how in heat waves today, as they've been happening and increasing in frequency and intensity, so many people don't understand the danger of heat until it's too late. And we don't treat heat waves like an emergency. Not really. You look in the news and when they talk about heat waves, the picture that they show is kids splashing around in a splash pad or a pool, right? Or someone laying out on the beach and they make it seem like, oh, this heat wave that's coming, it's a vacation. Like get ready to get some sun. Not like you would expect with a hurricane where there's like emergency, you know, urgency to it and, and contingency plans and all these things when really we need to be treating heat waves that way. As a matter of fact, according to the National Weather Service, 
extreme heat has been the deadliest weather phenomenon in the United States over the past 30 years. So as much attention as we put on hurricanes and wildfires and earthquakes and all these different things, heat, heat waves is what kills people. There was a study that showed that heat costs the U.S. economy $100 billion per year and that that could raise to $200 billion by 2030 and $500 billion by 2050 if nothing's done to mitigate climate change. You know, I think about the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest last year affected both the U.S. and Canada. And one of the reasons that it was such a huge deal is that the people there don't typically have AC because they're used to living in a pretty mild climate. One article I read stated that Seattle has the lowest percentage of households with air conditioning of any major metro area in the U.S., which likely contributed to hundreds of excess deaths. So in one event, you had hundreds of people dying because they didn't have access to AC, and they likely didn't know the seriousness or the danger of the heat wave. The article goes on to state that disparities in access to air conditioning also fall along racial lines. Black residents of New York City account for half of heat-related fatalities, despite being only 22% of the population. So again, going back to last week's episode, talking about those disparities and, and how unfortunate it is that they happen. But the reality is this, and it's that the planet is heating up and air conditioning is shifting from a luxury that's constantly keeping us at 68 to 73 degrees Fahrenheit to being a life-saving necessity for people who will increasingly be impacted by heat waves and specifically wet bulb temperatures. This may be kind of a random comment, but as you're reading through some of these facts and figures and you talk about the economic impact of heat waves and increasing temperatures as we go forward, one thing that's harder to quantify is just the personal impact that extreme heat has on people. Like, we can point to the deaths and say, yeah, there were this many deaths. But I think of how challenging it is to sleep, for example. When it's really hot, like that's a major problem for people. They cannot sleep and get the rest they need when there's just sweltering heat. I think about the fact that, like, yeah, there are professional settings. There's jobs that you can work inside. But so many jobs take place outdoors. And so it affects People not only in like a, a binary way, like sometimes we think of it as just like, is it causing deaths or is it not? But when you think about all the loss of labor, you think about all the personal impacts. You know, I read a study once where they've been able to quantify aggression and and the higher the temperatures, the more anger and aggression and acts of aggression take place, right? And so human behavior and mental health and all of this is wrapped up in what we're talking about. Yeah, really well said. I think that's an important part to look at that it has effects on mental health, it has effects on efficiency, work ability, health in general. I remember something from David Wallace Wells' book called The Uninhabitable Earth. I don't remember the figures that he stated, but he did talk about how there were some absurdly large number of, I think it was people in Pakistan who suffer from like liver failure not necessarily leading to death, but a life-changing condition that is, you know creates a disability due to heat. And there's just so many unquantifiable things and effects that it can have. If you've ever spent a night in a building without AC in high temperatures trying to sleep, you know just how difficult that can be. So the problems related to air conditioning 
are many. They come from all sorts of different angles. The problem that we've been speaking about up to this point is that it's becoming more and more necessary. More and more people are going to have to have access to it in order to stay healthy and to survive. So between the increasing temperatures, an increasing population, and the developing parts of the world deploying more and more AC, there is the expectation that total demand for air conditioning units is going to pretty much explode between now and 2050. Currently, there are 2 billion AC units being used worldwide, with about half of those being used in the US and China alone. Right now, about two and a half times as much electricity is used globally on AC alone as the entire African continent consumes for all its uses. Around 20% of all energy used in buildings around the world is for AC and ventilation. So if we've got 2 billion AC units now consuming all of that energy, by 2050, they're expecting it to be somewhere between 6 and 9 billion AC units. Anywhere between two and four and a half times as much. The UN, according to one of their estimates, says that 10 air conditioners will be sold on average every second for the next 30 years. That stat kind of just blew me out of the water. 10 AC units every second. Like, Kellen, maybe we should, like, invest in air conditioning. I'd be happy to sell one air conditioning unit every second for the next 30 years. Just kidding. But if it was simple, but if it was just as simple as installing more units, you know, ramping up production and saying, okay, great, there's no consequences. Everybody gets AC, everybody gets to live comfortably. It would be a no-brainer that we should do that. But there are, of course, huge downsides to using air conditioning. And it is, like we've talked about so many times throughout this podcast, a positive feedback loop. And this is kind of where we get into that paradox that Kellen was talking about. So we can kind of consider the following. As the planet heats up, more air conditioning is going to be needed in order to save lives. And the more the planet heats up, the more we're going to need it. The more we use air conditioning, the more the planet will heat up. And the more we use air conditioning, the higher electricity demand, demand on our electrical grids will soar. So the paradox in all of that being that in order to cool ourselves down, we are heating up the planet and requiring more air conditioning to cool more people down. So a crucial part of that paradox is the fact that air conditioning units raise temperatures, and they do so in three different ways. So one is just through electricity use and energy consumption. Another is through something called HFCs, which are hydrofluorocarbons. And the third is that air conditioning units heat up the surrounding areas on the outside of a building by cooling the inside of it. So we'll go over all three of those. But in order to kind of understand how that works and, and what that means, I think it is important to take a quick look at how air conditioning units work. And it's interesting because while there have been some sort of marginal efficiency gains over time, the technology behind air conditioning units, it, it works the same now as it practically did 100 years ago when it was invented. Basically, very simply here, if you're an HVAC tech, you're going to yell at me for oversimplifying this, but this isn't a, an HVAC lesson. I just want to kind of give the very general idea. AC works by using a refrigerant to cool air as it passes over it, and then it transfers the heat to the outside of the building and allows the cooled air to be forced into the rest of the building. This is done using, again, those HFCs. Um, it's a chemicals. You would probably think of them as a refrigerant. You've probably heard of Freon before. We don't use Freon anymore, but that's what Freon did. It's a, basically a way of recycling 
the cooled air, turning it into hot air, and pumping the hot air out while leaving the cold air in. But that does mean that cooling the inside of your home then makes the outside of your home hotter. So in cities, the heat from running air conditioners at night can raise ambient temperatures by around 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around 1 degree Celsius. So your city is almost 2 degrees Fahrenheit hotter just because people are running their AC units. You know, you talk about or you hear about cities being sort of like heat heat islands. It's basically this idea that you're in a concrete jungle, right? So there's not as much green absorbing heat and carbon dioxide. That heat is sort of soaking into the surfaces. And then you've also got AC, which is contributing a huge amount to that as well. The chemicals that are used in those refrigerants, in the past, with like Freon, we used what were called CFCs, which were chlorofluorocarbons. They were a major contributor to the hole in the ozone back in the 90s that was a huge deal. And the banning of CFCs back then is believed to be one of the biggest successes regarding bringing nations together to be able to create regulations and change that help the environment. And HFCs were what were typically used to replace CFCs. So while HFCs don't affect the ozone, they do, however, if they leak from your AC unit, they are up to 12,000 times more potent at trapping heat in the atmosphere than CO2. That's incredibly damaging, right? So even though the number of leaks may be small as a percentage, when you multiply that by billions of units and consider that the number could triple or quadruple just in the next 30 years, we're talking about something that's really potentially devastating to the environment and to warming. And this makes me think of something that I've brought up before, which is when I'm driving down a busy highway, I sometimes have this thought, I'm looking around and I'm like, what's the expiration of all the man-made stuff that we see, right? How, how many years is this road going to last before it has to be replaced and all the rooftops that I'm seeing and all the cars, and it, it makes you realize how much waste there is. I don't know the average lifespan of an air conditioning unit, but if you're talking about we've already got 2 billion of them and we're heading toward like 9 billion potentially. I mean, it can only be, what, 15 years, 20 years? I don't know how long they last, but to think that that frequently we're going to have billions of air conditioning units thrown away. And I know that there are methods for trying to, to dispose of those properly, but I guarantee those methods aren't always followed. Especially when you think about parts of the world where they currently burn their trash, right? Or where there's severe under-regulation for the disposal of hazardous chemicals and things like that. And those are the areas in which air conditioning is growing the fastest. So yeah, that that is a huge potential issue to consider that these chemicals are not being disposed of properly. And with them being up to 12,000 times as potent as carbon dioxide, that to me is pretty terrifying. So the next that brings us to sort of the big elephant in the room, and that is energy use and the requirements for running AC. You know, I think about the fact that we don't even need to look forward to 2050 or 2030 and say, oh man, like think of all that energy it's going to require. Think about all the energy it requires now. You look at places in the world, you know, just from the pressure coming from the war in Ukraine, European countries are firing back up their coal powered plants. They're running out of options as far as being able to run their infrastructure properly. And so they're going back to these old, dirty ways of doing it. According to some reports I've seen recently, we're already moving 
backwards on our emissions from coal, and we just hit numbers that haven't been seen in nearly a decade since 2013. One thing I thought was kind of interesting in an article I read, it said this. This was a quote from an expert on AC use and someone who's trying to find ways to use less energy in our AC consumption. They said, in current heat waves around the world, the priority must be saving as many lives as possible, even if the only options draw on fossil fuels. You can't not give people power because the only power you can give them is power with too much coal in the energy mix, he said. So he's basically saying when it comes to saving lives, it doesn't matter what kind of energy source we're using. We will use coal if we have to use coal to save people's lives. And I mean, that's exactly what we're seeing happen right now. And it's kind of spitting in the face of all the climate accords of all the pledges and packs that have been made for hitting certain numbers. It's like the minute that the consequences of not being able to support all our infrastructure are seen, all of that goes out the window and we will use whatever means necessary in order to keep it all running. And it's tough to argue with that. Like if you're the one that's going to make the choice, if you're the one that's going to push the button, right? are you going to choose to let people die now during a heat wave in order to reduce emissions? Or are you going to allow, you know, that that big increase in emissions, knowing it's going to cause awful long-term effects? There's not really a a win there. It's a kind of a lose-lose situation. And that's something that I feel like we've addressed several times in the podcast. It's it's one of the reasons why we will collapse, right? It's a catch-22 and no leader is going to successfully run on a platform of degrowth or like staunch mitigation if it's going to affect people's lives negatively. And of course, it's going it's always going to affect people's not lives negatively to take away some of these comforts and in some cases, cost lives. And so I think we will always continue to see politicians and leaders err on the side of saving lives, but it, it comes at the expense of the future of the planet for sure and potentially more lives down the road. And for me, when I look at my energy bill, my utility bill each month, I recognize that it spikes way up in the middle of winter and way up in the middle of summer, right? Just trying to keep ourselves comfortable in a a harsh climate is extremely energy intensive. And I know that you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but every time there's a major heat wave, there are these risks of like rolling blackouts. The grid just can't support it. And so as we talk about all of the resources that go into not only the energy itself and replacing all those old air conditioning units, there's also a lot of of money and natural resources that are needed just to bulk up the grid enough to be able to handle all that. Yeah, excellent point. That goes right into the sort of the next point here. And that's that the idea that AC and, and growing the amount of AC that we're using It's not just increasing the amount of energy use, which of course it is doing that, but what it's really doing is it's exploding the peak hour requirements for energy use. At the hottest part of the day, when every single AC unit is running on full blast to try and lower the temperature from 105 degrees to 71, you know, that takes a ton of energy and all at the same time. And then at night, when it's 71 outside and nobody's running their AC anymore, 
there's all of that capacity on the grid that's not being used. So it's this idea that you have to overbuild your grid's capacity by a ton just to service either those very specific times of day or those very specific times of year when they're going to be most utilized. Even though you might have 90% of the year when the grid's being used at 60% capacity, you have to have the ability for it to run at 100% capacity. That takes a lot more money, a lot more resources, a lot more energy. And it leaves entire systems extremely vulnerable to failure and therefore millions of people vulnerable to high heat. You know, you think about Texas and California and all these places that have experienced grid failure, rolling blackouts, that's already happening. In the U.S., we have a really outdated infrastructure that needs to be replaced. And it seems like that's just simply not going to be done because the cost is too high for these sort of what they call low probability scenarios, which in reality are becoming much more and more probable and much more frequent. So it's kind of another paradox where either the grids succeed and they use a ton of polluting energy sources to succeed, or they fail and they leave people vulnerable to the extreme heat and all the negative health effects of that. So as strains continue to grow on energy supplies, even from our more relatively clean supplies, I put clean in quotes here, you know, natural gas, eventually we're going to move back to those dirtier options. As we know that our resources are finite, that at least the resources that we're using for our energy sources, but our demand for AC is continuing to grow rapidly, renewable energies aren't going to solve the issue. We've talked multiple times about why renewables can't save us. So we're not going to go into that at length here, but to consider how quickly the demand is growing and how relatively slow renewables are trying to take its place. I think it's a pretty apparent that in just the next 10 to 30 years, that's not going to be enough to have any major impact. As an example, one article said this. It said, in Los Angeles County, rising temperatures combined with population growth could crank up electricity demand during peak summertime hours as much as 51% by 2060 under a high emissions scenario. That adds up to about six and a half additional gigawatts that grid operators would need to be able to bring online at once, or the instant output of nearly 20 million 300 watt solar panels on a sunny day. And that's just one county in California. By 2060, they'd have to add 20 million solar panels just to make up what the difference will be because of air conditioning usage. Which is so astounding. Like 20 million in that one relatively small area. And when you're not considering all the factors, it's easy to say like, okay, when it's hot, we need more energy. Great. Let's get a bunch of solar panels. And that takes care of the problem, right? Like it's during the time when the sun is hitting strongest that we need the energy the most. So we're set. But I remember earlier this year reading some articles about Phoenix, Arizona, and these records that were being set at the time for nighttime temperatures, you know, and, and places where it's not cooling down below 90 degrees Fahrenheit at night. And especially if you're somebody with, you know, pre-existing health conditions that make you more vulnerable to that, like that can be extremely dangerous. And even if it's not fatal, we already talked about how it causes all these other issues. And so even with something like solar panels, it goes back to the fact that We've got to have a way to store that energy, which is just 
even more costs, more resources being used. It's definitely not a clean solution. One projection shows that the very, very best case scenario worldwide is a 70% increase in AC-related energy increases by 2050. And that is if we basically had efficiency gains through new technologies that don't exist yet on our AC units and widespread regulations from governments all over the world. So like this pretty unbelievable scenario would still result in a 70% increase in energy uses related to AC. The business's usual growth would be a 300% increase in AC-related energy use. So three times as much energy spent on AC as is currently being exhausted right now. So, Kellen, you just brought up this question of like solutions. What is out there to help with this? What are people doing? And the truth is honestly relatively very little. In comparison with other issues that are being addressed and that people are trying to find solutions to, AC is one that is probably being under-researched based on the importance and the impact that it will have on the future. But there are beginning to be some trickling in of different sort of ideas and investments in looking into new things. So so the Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, it's a U.S.-based energy policy think tank It's endorsed by the UN Environment Program. They're offering $3 million to the winner of something they're calling the Global Cooling Prize. And the idea behind it is to be able to create an air conditioner that's up to five times more efficient than the current standard model, and it doesn't cost more than two times as much for it. They've received more than 100 entries, some coming from investors, some coming from like multinational conglomerate. So, I mean, there are people that are entering this But one thing that I thought was interesting is that RMI themselves, the people holding this contest, said that in order to keep total global emissions from new air conditioners from rising, the prize-winning efficient air conditioner would need to go on sale no later than 2022 and capture 80% of the market by 2030. So we're talking about like impossible adoption rates. It says, in other words, the new product would have to almost totally replace its rivals in less than a decade. And perhaps this was the most interesting Benjamin Sovacool, professor of energy policy at Sussex University and a lead author on the most recent IPCC report, describes the ambition not as impossible but unlikely. He said, This idea of technology saving us is a narrative that we want to believe. Its simplicity is comforting. It has proven so comforting, in fact, that it is often discussed as if it is our first and best response to climate change even as the time frame for inventing and implementing such technologies becomes so narrow as to strain credulity. So he's basically saying like, we want to believe that technology saving us is the first choice, but really it's not the best option. It's not what we should be gunning for, especially because the time frames in which we're working with here are narrowing so quickly as to pretty much make it undoable. Yeah, like so many things that we've talked about, it's just such a long shot. Like, for example, we sometimes talk about these pacts and agreements, these accords that nations make, and they've got these really aggressive goals around limiting climate change or or keeping us to a certain amount of warming by a certain period of time. And when you look at all the factors, it's like, sure, is it possible that all of the nations of the world will come together and sing Kumbaya and work together to solve these problems. It's like, sure, it's possible, but it's just so unlikely. And what you're talking about here with 
having to immediately ramp up some undeveloped, at least at this point, like extremely efficient form of air conditioning and have it overtake the entire market essentially within a decade. It's like, is it possible? I guess, but it's just so, so unlikely. One thing I was curious about, and so I, I took a look at it, is just how humidity affects air conditioning. And here's a statement I found. I, f- I found this interesting. It says, high humidity cancels out the air conditioner's cooling effect. When the humidity is too high, your building will feel warmer than it is. You may find yourself running the air conditioner harder for longer and not getting the desired effects. And so as you're talking about some of these ambitious goals around creating more efficient air conditioning units, I think at least in some areas, it would have greater gains than others, right? There, It might only get marginal efficiency gains depending on factors like humidity. But I'll say it again, just based on everything you're telling me, it does feel like this paradox, this kind of catch-22, this situation in which there's not really a winning option. And in other areas, it feels like there is a lot more attention and focus on trying to find solutions. And this is one that seems like it's underrepresented. Well, and it begs the question, if technology is not the solution, if we can't just increase efficiency simply, then what is left? And it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the episode, this idea that it's okay to be uncomfortable. And there's a lot of people out there trying to sort of push for this paradigm shift and going back to older ways of cooling ourselves, going back to simply being okay with it being warmer than we're used to. Now, because of the things that we've talked about here, there are a lot of ways in which I disagree, you know, trying to sleep at night and the effects that it can have on your mental health and physical health and all these things. If the temperatures are are too high, I mean, that could be very, really difficult. But that being said, I also think that for most people, most times of the year, the temperature is within a range that makes sense, right? One thing I thought was interesting, it talked about how only in America can you go to a hotel room and not have the option to open the window, but do have the option to control your AC unit. And I think it is just highlighting this idea that like, if a lot of people, you know, if you open your window at night and close your windows in the morning before it starts to heat up, if you're properly insulated, your house is going to stay at a relatively decent temperature for a good portion of the day. There are so many ways that we could more intelligently cool ourselves without the use of energy that we expend with AC, but it is just so convenient and so easy to do that we just leave our thermostats set to whatever we want to set them at and and make no other sort of efforts. And so what they're vying for is they're saying, maybe it's not about personal action and, and people making their own personal decisions on whether or not to use AC, but maybe there needs to be implemented much more harsh regulations on the use of AC when it can be used, when it can't be used, how high it can go, how low you can set your thermostat, those types of things. And then, as mentioned earlier, making sure that cities have cooling centers where people can gather during those dangerously high temperatures, those heat waves. So, I mean, I think it's an interesting idea. I think it will absolutely never work because people are just too in love with their AC. I know I love nothing more than coming in from you know, doing some sort of manual labor and being able to just crash on the couch with the AC. It's something that, that would be very hard for so many to give up. But as we face the future, as we go into the coming decades, I think for so many of us, it's simply not going to be an option. 
And that one proposed solution that you brought up around basically having to have more regulation seems like that is the proposal on like everything we talked about in collapse. All the financial issues, all the things contributing to climate change, all the resource depletion and, and everything. It's like, well, we just need more regulation. And while I don't necessarily disagree, it starts to feel like if there are strict laws in place for when you can use your air conditioning unit and when you can turn on the water and when you can do this and that and what car you can drive and when, like that alone starts to feel like this dystopia. It's eco-fascism for sure. It's hard to view the future, whether we're talking about this through the lens of something very specific like air conditioning or basically the, the political reaction to everything that will happen in collapse. There just simply doesn't seem to be a great choice. Forced degrowth is still forced. Unfettered capitalism and you know unrestrained growth also does not have a happy ending. There's just no real solution to it. And that's why we don't typically try and talk about solutions here because we don't really believe there are solutions. Mitigation, adaptation, yes. Preparation, resiliency, all those things, absolutely. But it feels like time and time again, we just have it thrown in our face that actual tangible solutions, it doesn't feel like there are any. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, the idea of, of air conditioning may seem trivial in terms of collapse. But when we're talking or thinking in systems, seemingly small parts can have huge effects on the outcome. Hopefully you're continuing to enjoy the podcast 100 episodes in. If you've been around this long, if you've listened to all 100 episodes and you found this to be valuable, we hope that you've left us a review by this point, And we hope that you've shared with a couple friends, maybe mentioned us on social media. It is a huge help to us. You know, a few episodes ago, we mentioned how one way you can really help out is to mention us on the subreddit R Collapse or other places when it's relevant. And a few days after that episode aired, we had somebody who did mention us. It became the top comment on a very popular post, not even on the Collapse subreddit, it was on a separate subreddit. And that one post led to somewhere around a thousand people listening to the podcast for the first time, which was really cool. So anyway, with all that, thank you so much for being with us for this long. We hope you'll stick around for a hundred more. And please feel free to reach out to us with any feedback, thoughts, comments, or even episode ideas.